Hi, I'm Randy Guy, Commissioner President of St. Mary's County, Maryland, and you're tuned in to Mako's Conduit Street Podcast. Whether you're a Maryland resident, a government official, or just someone interested in learning more about public policy in Maryland, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. This is Michael Sanderson. I'm taking the microphone to kick things off this week. Joining me today is Dominic Butchko from the Mako Policy Team. Welcome, Dom. Thanks for having me. And for today, to the delight of our teeming millions of guests, policy wonks and nerds across the free state, we're really glad to have a special guest. This team up, in my view, is kind of a long time in the making, but we've got Tom Cole here to join us. Tom, thanks for joining. Yeah, I mean, it's such an honor to, to be on this podcast. I am an avid listener, uh, and uh, it's it's one of the best podcasts in Maryland, if not the premier Maryland pod, Maryland podcast politics podcast <laughs> well that's that's the way you want to tee it up right yeah you, you, you butter the bread right up front now i mean I, I think i think uh tom for our listeners in in the event that you don't know tom um he runs in a similar space that we here at mako and on conduit street we try and cover policy and politics across maryland um tom's got a background in doing really similar kind of stuff for a number of years uh, you teamed up with candace dotson reed on the elevate maryland podcast which I thought was a really interesting, like relentlessly optimistic view of policy and what tomorrow could look like and so forth. You had like stellar guests and all that kind of stuff. So we always sort of admired what you all were doing from afar. And we kept having this idea that we were going to crisscross and we would come out to one of your restaurants in Howard County and we'd do a big live thing. And, you know, one thing, one thing, you know, we, we just sort of missed each other along the way. So Happy to have you plugged in here. In the meantime, you spent time on WBAL on the more conventional terrestrial airwaves. So we'd love to hear a little bit about that stuff before we, you know, get into the yeah. policy of the moment and so forth. But well, Elevate continues to to live, and I'm optimistic that uh, my partner and I still refer to her as my partner, Candace Dotson Reed, uh, is successful. She's launching it at UMBC. UMBC has decided that there's value in Elevate Maryland, which as you know, one of the founders with Candace, I'm very proud to hear. And so I do not think that we need to close the door on Mako and Conduit Street coming on the Elevate Maryland podcast in the future. Uh, and uh, I, I was honored to be on WBAL for 11 months. Um, we had another child and uh, I'm one of those unique uh, families of six. <laughs> we have four <laughs> kids now. Uh, and really, the thought process was there is I had a Saturday morning show, and I always thought of my listener as a parent driving their kid to a sporting event. And I realized that I needed to be the parent driving my kids to a sporting <laughs> event. So uh, I had to step back from there, but I left on good terms and uh, and the doors open to to maybe come back uh, at some future time. But it, it was a great opportunity to speak to Marylanders and, and hear what they're interested in and engage on those issues with them. Well, I I know you hit a nerve with that, and tell us a little bit about your current venture. You're you're you've joined up with one of the players on policy work here in Annapolis, um, the Perry firm, and so forth. So so give us a little lay of the land of the team you'll be working with and the place where you think you're going to inhabit in Maryland policy going forward professionally. Yeah, as of March, I joined Perry White, Ross, and Jacobson, uh, which 
you know, that they have all of the, you know, great reputation and and all, everything that they're known for. But I mostly knew them where I had very good friends and people I really respected in the industry that were doing big things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because so much of my work is in the housing space, I was more and more being drawn to Annapolis because housing policy is elevating itself uh, in terms of a priority. Uh, more of my clients were having state issues. And so it just made sense to come down uh, and join the firm. Uh, and I, I was very appreciative for the opportunity to do so. And since I've been here, that's only accelerated. Uh, I've been talking to more and more people in the housing space about uh, advocating at the state level um, and you know, doing it in a way. And, and one of the things I do want to note, since we're talking about buttering the bread and talking about Conduit Street, Mako has been so excellent in engaging on the topic of housing. I would say that few entities in the state are as aggressive in elevating this policy issue. And I think it's to your benefit because oftentimes, and I will include myself in this when we're talking about housing policy, local government is seen as an obstacle. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit further. But the fact that Mako has leaned into the topic uh, makes me excited to be on this podcast, but also I, I wanted to to applaud you all for doing that. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I think what you're seeing is a deliberate effort by our organization. We're a member service organization and folks around town sometimes think of MAKO as a policy shop where we advocate on bills and, and that kind of stuff. And we do that. But a big part of our duty is responsibility to serve and educate our own members. So they're the elected officials and professionals in county governments. So it would be foolish for us to miss this opportunity, particularly with so much change. We've got you know almost half of the elected officials in county government were newly elected this last fall. So an awful lot of folks, you know, we 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 make this joke all the time. It's like, well, I used to sell new co- used cars. Now you run a jail, right? <laughs> and but you know, so so like the nuances of oh, you're going to have to do a comp plan or you're going to have to deal with a, a crisis in accessible housing stock. Um, this is something that may not have been what you campaigned on, mm-hmm. but you own it as a county commissioner or as a council member now. Um, Mako would be, we'd be missing an opportunity if we didn't double down on this stuff. So it's a deliberate attack on our point to try and to try and add some depth and content to these issues. So talking with you is, is just a part of the same. So, so let's. I, I want to bring in Dom. Um, Dom does uh, is our policy lead for Mako's work on sort of land use issues and and uh, and housing in particular. And Dom set us up a little bit. Like we wanted to talk with with Tom, who's you know very engaged on housing issues generally. Um, set up the conversation a little bit for uh, for you know these issues as they face local governments here in Maryland and elsewhere. Yeah, definitely. So housing is one of the biggest issues we're seeing both within Maryland and nationally. We see the White House putting a ton of stuff out all the time about housing. Um, NACO, which is coming up this weekend, they're going to have a big housing release. So this is a conversation we're having both in Washington and Annapolis and in the county seats, you know, across the state. And no issue is really more fundamental to quality of life as well as the look, smell and feel of the communities that we all call home. 
And housing is also unique because historically we've had conversations around it that are very siloed. And yet, like no other policy area, this touches everything. I mean, it touches public safety, health, environment, education. And so, you know, I wanted to have Tom on to have more of a holistic conversation about it. And I think there's a lot of innovative solutions that we agree on that a lot of our, our listeners would be surprised. And so I'm excited to really dig into that. Yeah. And just to add on to that, you know, as I mentioned before, there is a, a big push in the pro-housing space to re-examine and upend local control. But Dom and I had the opportunity to talk prior to this. I don't think that there is any political appetite for that in Maryland this session or next session. I, I, I would suppose and expect that there is going to be every effort to figure out how to take on the housing crisis with the cooperation and partnership of MAKO and your constituent members uh, before anything like that happens after, which again, you know, it, it, I doubt even with NACO doing what it's doing with its national conference, that every state chapter uh, for the county organizations is doing what you all are doing, um, which again, you know, the opportunity to chat with someone as astute on policy as as you all are, I, I'm very thankful for that. So, so let me, for the benefit of our listeners, let me do a little fun with acronyms. You, you use the phrase pro-housing. Um, I want to mention one of the most ubiquitous little acronyms and euphemisms we use in the in the public sphere is the NIMBY, mm -hmm. the the not in my backyard that everybody's everybody recognizes that we need to have a jail or a landfill or a new power plant for the grid and so forth. Everybody recognizes there's a public need for all these various things, but then when it comes down to it, well, I don't want that in in my neighborhood. I don't want that in my backyard. The NIMBYism is a really common challenge in, you know, in inciting uh, difficult, difficult facilities, but also, you know, lots of different stuff. It's a big part of land use planning generally. And if you're familiar with NIMBY, you might be less familiar with the, the contrapositive, the YIMBY, the yes in my backyard. I don't know if you exactly, you know, tell you if you yeah, cloud yourself in the YIMBY phrase, but can you give our listeners a context about like what is, who, who's a YIMBY and, and where do they fit in the, the debate today, the pro-housing and, and pro, you know, smart development debate? Not only am I a YIMBY, but my two-month-old daughter has a YIMBY onesie uh, wow, that I got for her. What? that her mom has still not allowed her to wear. Um, <laughs> and photos will be attached to the podcast notes. <laughs> uh, yes, you know, yes, in my backyard, the, the whole movement is around the idea of legalizing housing. Um, the, there are a lot of quips about uh, ending single family detached zoning or abolishing single family detached zoning. Those conversations are not helpful. Really, what the YIMBY effort is about is legalizing housing in more areas and more modalities, making it more accessible, uh, safe and affordable. And so uh, I, the the NIMBY movement, I also don't even know if NIMBY is even the right descriptor anymore. I'm seeing more of, of what I jokingly refer to as bananas, <laughs> which are built absolutely near anyone, anytime, right. because these are folks that you see routinely at your local public hearings where it doesn't matter where the housing project is located. The idea that some evil developer is going to plow up their sunflowers and trees and put up evil housing that they're going to make a profit off of, that's that's the motive. And, and we do get stuck on the idea that people make money off of housing 
more than actually digging into, well, what housing do we need in our community? So I, I appreciate the NIMBY YIMBY dynamic. And obviously, YIMBY is a play off of NIMBY. Yeah. Uh, but it, it seems like the pol- local politics have, have gotten even a little bit a shade off of that in the last five years. Okay, so that sets the stage, I think, pretty well for the conversation we want to have. Dom, we um, local governments had an opportunity to go before a couple of the legislative committees in the 2023 session and kind of walk through housing has multiple facets. It's not, you know, there's not one bullseye. As long as you hit the bullseye, you're done. It's, you know, I think we made a made a case that this is a multifaceted issue. So I think maybe that's a good structure for us to talk through these issues with Tom. And I, we're very interested in, in in your your point of view on these various things. So kind of let's go through what we think are facets of the housing challenge today in Maryland and elsewhere. It's a function of a lot of different things, but let's let's like like all three of us slug through this stuff. Yeah. So I think the first biggest facet of housing, and and we see this in all of our jurisdictions, is the question around infrastructure. And a lot of our listeners, especially those in government, are very familiar with this word infrastructure, and it means a lot. So let's pull this apart. So housing, when we think of it, we think of four walls and a roof, and you actually have the physical structure. But the conversation of housing is a lot broader than that. So for example, a lot of the things that counties are feeling restrained on is the education um, and the blueprint and our investment into that and the share of that um, that it takes up of our county budgets and work we invest, you know, other funds then. Uh, we also have, you know, the transportation question going on. There's, you know, no question that we're in the middle of climate change right now. There's a push for electrification. There's a big push for public transportation, but that doesn't work in every jurisdiction. And so there's the question of, you know, um, multimodal. Do we have cars? Do we have more walkable communities? Do we still have single family housing? And where is that appropriate? So I think that's a big part of it. Um, another big part, and I, I really want to highlight this because it, it shocks me, Queen Anne's County, um, their wastewater capacity right now is at the limit to the point where they really can't have a lot of development. And I think that's a conversation not a lot of folks are having. I, I might be a little wrong on this, but I believe that they're actually the first jurisdiction in the Chesapeake Bay watershed where they hit that development limit. So they're going to have to have massive investment in their wastewater infrastructure. You know, and then we have questions around public safety, around fire, around medical, which again, longtime listeners of MAKO will know we have recruitment and retention initiatives around all of that stuff, but especially around fire and medical. And so when we have someone in a house, we want them to have the services. So so, Tom, I'd really love to get your perspective on that. That's a lot of big stuff I just threw at you. Yeah, no, no, and I'm happy to. So I think a, a beginning premise to sort of identify is that a lot of the infrastructure items that you've described, the counties have set up a funding scheme that is dependent on continued growth. Mm-hmm. I think what we're about to see is that many jurisdictions that were heading into their own fiscal cliff of sorts because of their slower or anti-growth policies, they were protected by money that came in from the federal government with COVID. But you'll see things like school surcharge bonds, uh, other construction bonds, uh, road financing. All of these things had been premised on continued growth and being able to have those new projects financed that growth. Mm. And so what I would expect your constituent members are ultimately going to see, in addition to the uh, additional expenses being put on them with the blueprint, is that if they have made radical changes to their growth policies, that they are going to need to find revenue from the existing tax base that they had earlier assessed onto 
future residents and just the growth itself. Strong Towns, which is a, I would say it both it has that balance you're looking for, but is generally a pro-growth website, <laughs> describes this scheme as a pyramid scheme, um, saying that the folks that are here tomorrow are going to pay for the things that we need today. And so I think it's just, it's important to bookmark that because from a financing perspective, I do not think stopping housing is going to resolve ongoing infrastructure issues. Because as we know, all of our counties have these long road repair deficits, have school uh, capital project uh, lists a mile long, and we can find a way to work together to align growth with those projects because that is probably the fastest and easiest way to find money as opposed to having to raise money from the existing tax base, which I, I don't think anyone really has an appetite for. The second thing is, and this is a little bit trite, but I think it's important to note, is that housing is infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, the only way you slow or decrease the demand for housing is to make it a less desirable place to live. If you look at, and I presume it's across the state, but at least in the jurisdictions of Central Maryland, most of the most overcrowded schools are in districts that have not had any new development for the last 10 years. And that is because the existing housing stock and the turnover of the existing housing stock is the primary generation of new pupils coming into that, that school system. So when you look at it that way, and, and also if you look at housing growth versus population growth for many of these counties, population growth is outpacing the housing unit production, which means people are coming in to live in smaller spaces. They are coming in to live in homes that originally were for a single family that end up housing four families. That is not a good place for our school systems to be. Um, as it relates to our roads and our traffic, all of us that have been around the D.C. area have seen those signs that said, if you lived here, you'd be home by now. Mm -hmm. A lot of the traffic that we experience are from people that are not living as close to where they work as they would like. When Larry Hogan spent as much money as he did on expanding our highway systems, it was so that people who lived in Howard County uh, who worked in Howard County could live in Frederick and Carroll County. It was so that people who worked in Montgomery County could live in Howard County. It was for people who worked in D.C. could live in right. the suburbs. Right. People are forced to move until they are approved. That's right. what it's called. You know, you, yep. you yep. move until you get approved for a mortgage. And that is that is not optimal for us. That is that it, the people that are stuck in traffic are not sitting in traffic with their neighbors. They're sitting in traffic with people that are trying to use our highway system to get all over the state back to where they need to go. In terms of wastewater and public safety, well, wastewater, number one, I, I think that it is critical that we maintain our smart growth policies when we are looking at how to accommodate the housing crisis. Because now there are safer septic systems than there were when uh, smart growth was originally adopted. Mm -hmm. And maybe there is some reexamination of that because Housing, another thing I want to say, it's not fungible, meaning you can't just build a million units here and take care of the housing needs for the state. Right. You know, the housing needs to be co-located where people want to live. Right. And so even in communities like Queen Anne's that might have this wastewater issue, that's more of a four alarms for the state to say, hey, it doesn't change the fact that people need to live here. Um, and so this is something that we might need the state's assistance on, even in a resource constricted environment. And then public safety. I mean, that is a crisis across the country 
um, simply because those professions are not recruiting as they were right. before for sure. due to national trends and cultural uh, trends in terms of how public safety uh, uh, men and women are viewed. Uh, but obviously, you know, those are things that we are all on the same page on. I just re recommend that, like, we re-examine the prism that we view them in. Because if you start with the premise that housing is infrastructure, and then you add on the just simple fact that we've decided to fund so much of our infrastructure on continued growth, stopping new housing, so stopping one element of infrastructure, is going to be to the detriment to all other elements of infrastructure, right. unless you find a new funding stream. Right. And there's an arithmetic argument there. And like... That's sort of I'm, I'm fond of on this podcast saying we'll put a pin in that for a future episode because that's like a 90 minute conversation on its own. And you bring in some green eye shade types. And you, <laughs> but you talk about yeah. the, you know, the, the motivation for every political generation to say, let's do things now. And we, oh, our, our 15 year plan to afford it involves some optimism right. about what's going to happen here for. I mean, it's it's an understandable way that that you know, an incremental budget gets done, that capital projects get planned and so forth. Uh, but it also does leave you committed to saying, well, you need to have that growth because you've you've already you've already it's already spoken for. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You you pay for no and slow growth like that. Mm -hmm. That is it should be a budget item for any of these jurisdictions that have decided they're full. They need to decide how much are they willing to pay for that because they're going to pay for it. Right. I think the other the other piece of infrastructure that is tricky as a matter of short-term policy is that the stock of infrastructure in the short term is not rigidly fixed, but it's close to it. Mm -hmm. Your ability to do massive uh, whatever uh, you know extra lanes on your on your uh, major road arteries, your your ability to to add transit options. Um, yeah, your ability to expand pipes and so forth. I mean, those are some of the things that end up being the practical limitations today in how many people can live in an area. To, to the extent that we say we want to expand housing options, a lot of that is let's let's find more density in areas that are already built up and are relatively desirable. They're accessible to transit and so forth. And that's, I mean, those are that's embracing smart growth principles, but if the pipes aren't there to handle more people who are going to spend 24-7 in that neighborhood doing the things that require pipes, then suddenly you can't, like, you practically, that neighborhood, neighborhood can't handle another 150 families if the pipes aren't there to handle it. And that's usually not overnight to resolve that. That may be a 10-year quest. Yeah. So that that's where I think a lot of local governments, and I think this is county and municipal and nationwide, a lot of local governments find themselves in a pinch in the short term, where boy, we've got we've got a shortage of housing, and folks would love to live here in this area, um, but we don't have the wherewithal to find you know, 200 more units within the quarter mile of that transit center. Yeah, and, and there is, and this is just letting a little bit of my cynicism come through, mm -hmm there is some artifice to those objections sometimes mm -hmm. that you can always find a reason to not allow more housing if you presume that the housing is what causes population growth. But if you accept the original premise that I'm offering, that the population is growing it, it, with or without the new housing, your infrastructure is taxed anyway. 
And so really, it is more about accommodating a natural force, that being population growth, as opposed to, you know, I've seen it in every circumstance, you know, we we can't allow these 15 units because we only have 14 seats in our school. That right. one additional right. seat is right. not going to be to the detriment of anyone's education, but that one additional seat per a formula that the locality right. applies shuts down those 15 units. Those are the types of things where we need to we need to see the forest for the trees. We need to be a little bit more. And you all mm -hmm. had Stuart Pittman mm -hmm. on the show. I think that what he and the county council of Anne Arundel County did in terms of the adequate public facilities that they just passed should be something every other locality looks at. The adjacency test, that is about making sure that you are fully utilizing the capacity that you have and you're not setting up arbitrary boundaries for new housing. Um, and, and so I I loved that you mm -hmm. had him on because he's someone that is really just striking that balance. He's obviously not as aggressive as as I would want, but he is moving in the right direction and, and meeting his community's needs. Right. So I'll, I'll, I'll put a pin in that for our listeners. If you missed that episode from a couple of weeks ago, County Executive Pittman spoke about these infrastructure limitations, particularly school capacity, as an impediment to growth that the county would like to advance. And they basically are pursuing a lateral solution, saying, how can you change district boundaries for schools and feeders to get around those limitations? And, and let's 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 uh, take capacity in one area of the county and shift it to another place where growth would be desirable. And if that takes realigning school districts, hey, that can be hard at the community level. That can be hard politically. But that may be the kind of thing that it takes to, to try and like slice through this stuff. So anyway, good to go back and listen to that if you haven't, because it connects very much to these conversations. So And you know, I love this conversation on Anne Arundel because it opens us up to our next topic here. You know, Maryland, it really is federalism. The counties are laboratories of democracy. And so I want to talk a little bit more about what we can do to kind of empower our jurisdictions. You know, we just talked about all the great things Anne Arundel is doing. And so there are a couple of things that come to mind. Um, first of all, P3s, public-private partnerships. How could we, you know, pursue new kind of innovative innovative ways there? I know you and I were talking a little bit about what's going on in Texas. I think there's a lot of conversation around tax credits and what that means for you know the development of housing. The state, for example, has a really great historic tax credit that really helps, especially in Baltimore City, kind of convert office space to either mixed use or residential. There's a lot of conversations about the right of first refusal. You know, I want to highlight Prince George's County and I believe Montgomery County as well. Both of them have really first class programs around the right of first refusal. And I think some of our other jurisdictions do as well. And so I want to talk to you about those three but also like what other possible tools can we explore that aren't being used? And actually there's one I forgot I want to mention before you jump into that, the idea of using state and county credit ratings as a way for cheaper financing. You know, one of my jurisdictions brought that up to me. I think that's brilliant, especially in the kind of the financial environment we're in now. So now let me open it up to you. Yeah, no, I mean, I love those examples. I, I would say the the interesting thing about the housing conversation is that it, it, it can... There's all this uh, conversation of, well, we need to revisit zoning power and local authority. But the other side of it is, what if we empower the counties more? What if we give them more tools to have more discretion in actually building housing? And I think and we did not pay Tom. To that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that is something that so counties have these resources available to them. They have a lot of land. Um, they have bonding authority. 
And then they are ultimately the ones that have this zoning authority that's delegated to them by the state. Those three tools, if they so chose, would be very powerful to build housing. You look at our Secretary of Housing and Community Development, Jake Day, and you see what he did in Salisbury when he was mayor of Salisbury, where he had a window of time where permits were streamlined, fees were waived, and he had a goal for producing a certain amount of housing units. And the end result of that is that their tax revenue is a multiple of what it was before uh, or will is projected to be mm-hmm. when those units are finalized. So as we're looking in a resource-constrained environment, I, I would recommend that those counties look at the fact they've got land, they have the uh, bonding authority, and then they're also in charge of their own permitting and zoning. And, and if they take charge and are aggressive in building housing, I always say housing doesn't need to be whatever the developer class comes up with. It doesn't need to be whatever someone got under contract and brought to the county for approval. That is a passive system. There can be an active and intentional system that counties can undertake to build their own housing in the places that they want to have housing. It's just if it does come with some political courage because the bananas and the NIMBYs are going to exist in all circumstances. There is not going to be a time, I don't think, where someone's going to say, oh, wow, you found the perfect spot for housing. I did not know it existed, but you found the perfect spot. It it has all the needs that that we want in housing. It doesn't have any infrastructure demands. Congratulations. That's not going to happen. But but to Dom's point, what it Texas does is they have these things called public facility corporations. Uh, and they partner with for-profit developers using the land of the locality and its ability to offer tax credits and its ability to generate bonds to build housing. And it has been the most effective way of building affordable housing for those that would not for units that wouldn't be able to be built under the low income housing tax credit program. And, and that would be one you'd right. put a pin in. You can yep, talk yep, about that yep. all <laughs> in and of itself. But there is this band of incomes that are not well covered by the LIHTC program that these PFCs are, are good at covering. And they do it in what I call naturally occurring affordable housing, where you don't need to have these inefficient, in my view, inefficient tax credits where you're spending X dollars per unit to build it. Um, So that's one thing. The other thing is, and this is under existing state law, our counties have the ability to issue revenue bonds for anything that can pay for itself. And they can do that at a cheaper dollar amount than if you went to Bank of America and got a a loan on, on the market. And so using that bonding authority particularly when you can project out what the rents are going to be, uh, how you're going to be able to expense it over time. That is another creative way to have the counties participate more. They don't need to get into the business of being a landlord, nor would I recommend it. But these resources that they have available to them can be brought to bear in constructing housing. Um, And in terms of tax credits, I would suppose that going into the the next few years, counties are not going to be able to take on the tax expense of offering tax credits. You know, you're still going to see them in certain circumstances with pilots and the like. Um, and, they, you know, Baltimore City has received a lot of criticism in terms of how it's used tax credits. But yeah, obviously, that is another avenue. But this is all with the background of Folks are ready to build housing, not as much as they were before because the cost of money and the cost of materials have made it somewhat prohibitive. But there is a market mover that is ready to build the thing that the community needs, that being housing. 
Um, and to the extent the county wants to play a more active and intentional role in building housing, it can look to what Secretary Day did in Salisbury to be active and intentional there, or it can use the resources that it has available to, to itself to direct that housing to certain locations. Right. So, so we're trying to break down the difference between housing as a private sector concern and a potentially public sector concern. Sometimes it's easy to walk away from an issue and say, hey, well, you know, the market just won't bear that. Those projects aren't getting greenlit. No one's financing them. So we just walk away. There won't be any housing here. Mm -hmm. And the idea that there may be opportunities as stewards of neighborhoods and communities to say, how can we bridge that gap? And and maybe um, maybe it doesn't mean that the county becomes a de facto landlord, but you become the financier. It may be that a public sector entity, especially a larger jurisdiction or a state partner or a federal partner, may just have better and safer access to capital than the private sector developer. If you can turn a yellow light into a green light on a project that everybody thinks makes sense, then you can steer things in a positive direction just by like having the influence in the market, right? And to a certain extent, it might require additional authorization from the state to do some of these mm -hmm. things. Right. And another interesting thing is, is that our local housing authorities in uh, with only one exception, that being Montgomery County, they turn their bonds over to the Department of Housing and Community Development. So our state is taking their bonds and, and using them to finance projects. Right. But if our housing authorities received a little bit more uh, authority, uh, and we're encouraged to do this, I think that the housing authorities in and of themselves can be powerhouses for helping to create this housing. If there's one nuanced issue too, I, I want to touch on it. I'm, I'm going to take us on a journey, but then I'm going to, I'm going to land the okay. plane. But, you know, we're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about counties. We're talking about, you know, there's this, this pipeline of projects waiting to come. I think some of the areas people don't think about too is the investment we need to make in workforce. And there's one example I really want to highlight. So environmental health in Maryland, you know, it's one of those crucial things. These are the guys that come, they inspect your restaurants, but they also do septic approvals and a lot of stuff around the approval of that health infrastructure around the house. And right now we're seeing with them just a critical levels of staffing in some jurisdictions. And there's stories of, you know, you go, you work for the county health department and environmental health, you know, you get your sea legs, you get your training, and then the private sector offers you a salary two, three times, in insane levels more. And so I think when we're talking about this housing, you know, question, we have to look at it really a holistic approach. We have to address areas like that too because i mean there are certain jurisdictions where you, you are waiting for to get something approved but it, we need to have the workforce as well and so i just want to highlight that and especially in environmental health in the state of maryland we need investments there and all of those employees they're state employees in most mm -hmm. jurisdictions and so we need the state to help us there yeah and, and you know one of the challenges with more directed forms of housing is the fair housing act you know the fair housing act has as many wonderful things to its credit but one of the downsides is you can't target housing units you can't say these are the housing units we need so what you're describing that is the, an entire spectrum of income and actually a, a parallel uh community are those who provide services for adults living with disabilities uh we we have this huge need uh we've got great health services for those individuals but those who are doing the regular service providing you know in, in Howard County and other jurisdictions they have had housing programs specifically for people that work in hospitals because all of these localities need hospitals but it's not good if there's a snowstorm 
and the nurses and nursing assistants can't get to the hospital. Yeah. So, I mean, what what that all brings together is maybe there are partnership opportunities in the public sector and private sector players. Um, part of that probably also requires part, you know, Tom, you've already mentioned, we might need some clearer or more specific authority from the state for local governments to be able to, to take some of these tools. So, Dom, that's another facet of all this that we've been stressing is no one's in this on an island. It's not one town on their own, one county on their own, that the state and the state agencies, potentially the federal government and federal HUD and so forth, like there may be layers of partnerships here that make sense, right? 100%, 100%. And actually talking about partnerships. So I want to transition again to, you know, the development process and looking at that. And, you know, Tom, I know you have some pretty, let's say, unique thoughts on that, <laughs> uh, that, I, that I've heard you out there telling the world. So why don't you give us a little bit of your ideas there? Yeah. So, and and these ideas are are not just mine. They're they're based off of a number of articles and and one book in particular, Neighborhood Defenders, that talks about how the process of getting housing approved is 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 creating the bad outcomes that we're seeing. That we have a public pr- planning process where we say we need these number of units in these locations. These are our growth areas. These are our revitalization areas, and these are the criteria we want for that housing set all that out, but then the project itself needs to go through an administrative hearing process where anyone can appeal it, anyone can take it all the way up to the Court of Special Appeals, you're adding two to three years onto the project, Mm -hmm. and time kills deals. Anyone who is in the real estate industry will say that. So that is a bad system. It is a flawed system, and it creates predictable outcomes. And you sound anti-democratic when you say that, but it's just based off of the presumption that the status quo is correct. And what we really should be doing is having an even more exhaustive public planning process, saying what do we want our communities to look like? Where do we want things to be? Um, how do we want them to be developed? But then after those sort of, you have the veil of ignorance on at that stage, then when it gets to the actual site proposal, more of those approvals are by right. And that is in no way anti-democratic. It's actually pro-democratic, small d democratic, because you're actually allowing the plan that was adopted by the exhaustive process to be implemented. When you have a general plan or some other uh, community-wide planning document that is upended, by 15 dedicated people in a hearing room that are able to stall that thing out, that's anti-democratic. That that is ruled by the micro minority. And so we need to be aggressive in re-examining those processes and say, are we going to have the counties at large decide on something that, that, that can then be destroyed by folks that wouldn't even fill up a school bus? Uh, so that's that's the idea there, just re-examining the administrative approval process and allowing more of these housing developments to proceed by right. So so in so in Maryland terms, let me see if I'm translating this right. What you're kind of saying is if you know magic wand in your hand, it would be more macro, less micro. And in, in Maryland, that's the, the comprehensive plan process. Mm-hmm. Every every town, every county has to go through a comprehensive plan process. And that's where you unroll the big map. 
and you have the big stakeholder input about, you know, this is the area that over the next 10 years we want to target for growth and we want to extend sewer and water, you know, sewer and public water out into these two extra neighborhoods. And we think there's capacity for growth in these four sections and so forth, but not here. That's going to be the ag reserve. That's going to be the area we're targeting for solar development or whatever, that you have that big picture plan on sort of a 10 year cycle you invest heavily in that, and and then you have fewer opportunities for trip ups when it's the block by block. You know, oh, is this consistent with the big plan? Then it should be mostly a yes, as opposed to you know a whole lot of you know hurdles to clear at the small scale. Is that fair? It, it's right. a it's a matter of fairness and yeah. justice because if someone is going to, as much as we might malign developers, if someone is going to make an investment based off of a document such as a general plan that has gone through that exhaustive process and they look at the zoning regulations and their plan is in compliance with the zoning regulations, they should be able to proceed with that. And it should not be because, again, you could be wrong on the law and on the general plan, but still win by delay. And we need to do whatever we can to change that because delaying a project and killing it by making it slow down as much as possible that's not just, and it's not a system that we should be endorsing in any way. So, so longtime podcast listeners will know that there's nothing Michael loves more than an inherent tension in public policy. And I smell one here, and I think it's fair um, that it's sort of like you know why do we why does the government spend nine hundred dollars for hammers because we set up rule after rule after rule for accountability and transparency and to make sure that no one's you know getting a side deal or or doing something crooked and so you end up with a procurement process that's insane it's kind of the same thing here that in the you have two competing interests both of which are valid one is you want to make sure that there is appropriate public and community input on approvals for you know a, a new facility or a new 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 thing to be cited in the neighborhood that it is in fact consistent with the larger plan and so forth so almost everybody would agree at the surface level that that stakeholder input is appropriate but then on the flip side you want desirable things to be able to be on a fast track and and merely the the process for input becoming its own impediment to any pro- progress um can become like a, a negative mark even even if it's all well intentioned <laughs> yeah and and i would even add that you can have a more transparent process by making more things by right and things actually become opaque and an insider's game when you add these additional layers of complexity and administrative approvals. What you'll see in jurisdictions that allow more things by right is lower barriers to entry, more minority participation in real estate development, uh, and more national participants, meaning national builders and national developers. Whereas when you make this just slog of an administrative approval process, you make it more political, and you make it so that insider developers, everything that people hate about developers in terms of being politically connected and sleazy and, you know, the political donations, everything that we don't like is created by the system. It is what the system encourages, because if you don't have the pulse of the local politics and the local politician, you can't develop in the state of Maryland. And, and again, we should not have systems that encourage those outcomes. 
Well, there was a lot there. So we're going to go, we're going to transition one more time. This is another one that we can go hours on. So the the last topic I want to hit on is, you know, better coordination of policy, especially around housing. So, you know, as we opened up, I was saying, you know, housing doesn't exist in a silo, but we've treated it that way. And I think counties, you know, really get kind of the raw end of that deal when you look at how Maryland is set up and we're the ones that mostly implement a lot of policy. And so we see a lot of times where, you know, the state government, they set, you know, counties, you have to execute X, Y, and Z in all these policy areas. So, you know, environment, we're going to do forest conservation, you know, housing, we want to see development and smart growth and everything. And then like certain other areas as well that we have to do. And what we're seeing a lot is, we're getting competing objectives and all of these objectives are important, but we're not developing policy in a holistic way. So I'm really happy to have you on because I think we have to have start having more conversations with NIMBYs and YIMBYs and Enviros and everyone. But I think we can be smarter with, especially at, at the state level, you know, counties are the ones that should implement and no solution is going to be correct. But we want to make sure that all of the finish lines that we're aiming for kind of line up there. So kind of a closing thought, like, Tom, do you have anything to, yeah. to say on that? Yeah, I, I would say that where we see a lot of the sort of discordance and lack of coordination is when advocates are trying to get after an outlier county. Um, because as an example, with forest conservation, forest conservation had been very aggressively pursued in a lot of the central Maryland counties. But the reason why it was pursued at the state level was because there were outlier counties that were not participating in that way. Obviously, housing policy has a similar mindset where you might have XYZ counties that are doing everything right on housing. But if anyone comes wants to come in and do a state standard, it's to address the outlier county. So uh, I think the, the ultimate thing we should be pursuing when it comes to any of these policies is predictability. And predictability is not benefited by the fact that we're going to have discordance between what the counties are doing and what the state is doing. And the policy making at the state level is going to be completely different than the policy making at the local level. So I don't I don't have a solution on this other than to agree with you that the frustration that you see and the frustration that your constituents are representing, it's really just deciding what kinds of things are appropriate for some kind of standardization and what kinds of things do we want to encourage innovation on. And, and I would suggest housing, and this would be a good closing note, housing is one of those things where the state it can work alongside your constituent members to encourage the outcomes that it wants instead of making mandates right out of the gate. And that is a way that with forest conservation, we can encourage the outcomes we want instead of punishing outcomes that we don't like. And in housing, that's something that I'm constantly talking about and saying, if you understand that a for-profit mover is building the thing that that you're concerned about, everything else should be based around that. And if you incentivize what you want, you're going to get it. If you punish it, people are going to try to figure out a way to get around the rules. I mean, public policy is rife with conversations about carrots and sticks. And there's ample opportunity for a long string of carrots to be a part of shaping what you know, the next 15 years of housing policy in Maryland and elsewhere can look like. And you know, we're seeing some of our local jurisdictions, you know, do some of this stuff on their own. But I think we're in the midst of that continuing conversation. Um, a number of times today, you've already mentioned that the state may have a role and, and it may mean more tools or it may mean more authority or it may mean more resources or partnerships. But I think all of these point in the direction of 
this is an area that deserves your attention. Um, and that um, if you're an elected official from local government and you're listening to this podcast, hats off for doing that. But you've got to be thinking about this stuff. This is your charge and this is your community. And you can't afford to write this off as these are forces bigger than my county or bigger than government. It's just a matter of what are the private developers out there going to do? And I think that's one takeaway that, you know, without wading too deeply into whether this particular answer or that particular answer is perfect or or, or terrible, um, I think that mentality is really productive. We like the idea of spotlighting Anne Arundel looking sideways and looking around for a way to get around some obstacles. I think jurisdictions using a similar mentality are going to find themselves better positioned to serve their neighborhood, their community, and, and the folks who want to live and thrive in and around you. So I think that's a good direction to head. Folks, you understand why you want to invite Tom Cole to be on your podcast. So this easily, easily could be two and a half hours. And, and uh, I used to joke that we would have the, you know, the, the after hour session on the only fans account. Apparently that's, <laughs> you know, that's no longer a, a politically sellable way to do that. Maybe that's on the Patreon account we'll call now, but um, Tom, any, any other thing you else would like to, uh, to add in to sort of close things out big picture, you've covered a lot of ground, but what else would you like the, the the nerds and the local officials who are listening to this podcast, what else should they hear from you today? I'm just so thankful that Mako is inviting folks like Dan Reed to to your conferences to to hear people that have been involved in this issue for so long. I appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast. I'm excited for the summer conference. I'm I'm registered, so I'll be there. Um, but I, I just want to continue to encourage all the great work that Mako's doing on housing. Well, we love to cap it off there. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom. Thanks, Tom, for walking through all these policy issues. Friends, let's wrap up this walk down Conduit Street for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. That way, all the episodes will be delivered directly to the device of your choice. And go ahead and smash that five-star review. That's how we do it, right? So you can follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, on the Conduit Street blog. For Don Butchko, today's guest, Tom Cole, this is Michael Sanderson signing off. And we will talk to you soon.